All right. So today we're going to talk about love. Okay. We are on, depending on which book you have, page 11 or page 13. Yeah? Yep. Okay. What page? 12. Well, it depends. 13 and then. Oh, yeah. Okay. Fine. Okay. Now, just to recap some of the basic points that we were speaking about. The idea here is that the godly soul has 10 faculties, 10 abilities, 10 powers, which are roughly divided into two groups called the seichel and the midas. The seichel, usually translated as the intellect, are those faculties which are about becoming aware of reality the way reality truly is. And by reality here we mean the immaterial parts of reality, not the stuff you can see with your eyes and taste with your tongue and touch with your fingers, but all the other stuff, which is all the really important stuff like the rightness and wrongness, the why things are what they are, what's important, what's not important, things like that. And then the midas are usually understood to be emotions. Um, and that primarily divides into emotions of what are called love and fear. Love are, so to speak, the emotions that are binding and attracting and, and connecting. And fear are emotions... Um, that involve a sense of distance and separation and smallness. That was, and then we spoke about how the Seichel has these two faculties called Chachma and Bina, which serve like a father and a mother when you use them properly and produce children. How does you use the Chachma and Bina properly together? That was a process we called Hisbeinanus in Hebrew, and in English we had a few words, contemplation, reflection, pondering, and if you like the word, as long as you know what we're talking about, you can use the word meditation. And the idea is that when one reflects on the greatness of God and one does it in the proper manner, which we spoke at length what that was, what happens, first one has a sense of fear in their mind and then dread in the heart. Okay? What is there, anyone remember what the fear in the mind was? What does that mean, fear in the mind? Why is contemplating the greatness of God bring to fear in the mind? I know, it was Wednesday, now it's Tuesday. It's almost a whole week. It is a whole week. It's a long time to remember. Anyone? It leads to physical paralysis? No. No. Although I did mention that, that it could eventually, but that was not the point. Yeah. Because everything is considered as nothing? Well, that's one of the levels of the greatness of God, but there's other levels, right? There's how he fills the world. Remember I gave the analogy if you're making a life and death decision? What happens when you realize the decision you're making is a life and death decision? Yeah, there's this, right, it's hard. You have a sense of the gravity, the severity, the significance. Now, is that the same thing as, as, a, as a feeling of dread? No, because dread, a person becomes anxious a person loses their ability to think clearly and rationally. So there's a two-step process. The first thing is that when thinking about the greatness of Hashem, when contemplating the greatness of Hashem, the first reaction is that it hits the person that this is for real. And that feeling that this is for real eventually goes from what's called fear in the mind to dread in the heart, that 
instead of it just being a really serious thing, a really important thing, a really significant thing, it becomes overwhelming. That sense of God is really that great becomes so overwhelming. The person is moves from being a proactive state of his bindness to being in a reactive state. Right? So the, the broadness of mind and the richness of thought that's associated with his burdenness no longer is possible because the person is overcome with a sense of trepidation at how serious this, which could theoretically lead to physical paralysis in very extreme, intense cases. But it's not like necessarily frequent occurrence. Okay? Is it at, more frequent for some specific type of people? Yes. Like who? I don't know. Oh. But what you said is just the obvious thing is that any phenomenon about people is generally more common with certain types of people than other types of people. So. <laughs> it's a pretty generic <laughs> about any, about any particular thing you say about people, right? Unless it's a universal thing. My fault for asking you yes or no. Okay. Um, <laughs> now, at the end of the last class, I spoke briefly about why fear precedes love. I want to make sure we, are, we um, have that clear, and then we're going to move on into the text when it starts speaking about love. Why does fear precede love? Or why should fear precede love if everything is being done properly in a healthy manner? And this is, by the way, not just with God. This is with all people. Fear. Fear what? Ego. Why does fear have to precede love? Because if it's the other way around, your ego gets in the way. Right. If the other way, then the love is an objectification of the other person. It's I love them because of what they do for me and there's no regard for their autonomy, their separateness. Right? You reduce them to only what they, what they do for you. Okay? In English, we have words for this, like respect and dignity. If you don't feel any sort of respect for another person, you have no sensitivity to their personal dignity, then your love for them is an objectification. We have a word for people who feel that way about other people. We call them stalkers. Yes. So, um, before you get married to well, so this is the issue, is that the word yira, which is the word we're using for fear, covers a broad sense of emotion. Right. Okay. So I'm, I'm drinking it. So now, if you want the honest answer, the answer is you should, I mean, this is ideal and this is not going to sound very modern and like blah, but the truth is that yes, before you get married, you should have more than just a sense of basic respect for them because they're a human being. There should even be a sense of I would almost, I would almost say a small degree of awe. That, in other words, a sense that you would feel slightly uncomfortable and privileged to be able to marry such a person. And if that's not present, it doesn't mean you can't get married. But ideally, that would that would be good. Yeah. And that should be two-way, right? Maybe. Mm -hmm. If you want to have that discussion, we can. But I don't think we're going to get to Tanya. Love. <laughs> the sense of Yira should go both ways. I'll, I'll say like this. The sense of Yira should go both ways. But whether it's, whether, it's, whether it's qualitatively the same, that's like a more complicated discussion. Okay. Fine. So, 
Okay, let's read the text a little bit. Actually, you know what? Before the text, let's talk a little bit about love just in general. I gave you before an analogy for love. Did I remember the analogy for love I gave you? What love is like? This is a long time ago. It was a long time ago, so I won't feel bad if you don't so remember. Fun. What? Right. What is that? What is that like? I gave an analogy for that. That's exactly. Like it's like a fire. And what do you keep trying to do with the fire? Put it out. But instead of putting it out with water, what do you keep pouring on it? Oh, gas. Gas. And so instead of putting it out, what happens? It's bigger. So then you pour more gas to put it out. Right. That, that, that's this sense of I feel close. So I want to get closer. When I get closer, instead of my desire to be closer being satiated, I just now have this deeper, more intense desire to be closer. That's the feeling of love we're talking about here. Now, what should be immediately obvious to everybody is all love really like that? No. no. Right? Like, if you have siblings, you probably don't feel that way about your siblings. Right? It's a probable. I mean, there, sure, there are exceptions, but okay. Um, there is other kinds of love. Okay. I want to broadly, before we go forward, speak about three kinds of love. Okay. Not that Chassidus only has three kinds of love, but I'm going to speak about three kinds of love to help us understand where the text is going. So I'm going to first speak about two kinds of love that the text is not talking about, and then we're going to talk about the kind of love that the text is talking about. The love we were just talking about is in which context? What? The love Wait. of like the gas and fire is not necessarily. Because why we... Wait, I'm, wait, I'm wait. using the... Let me try and put it out. Wait, just if you... If quiet, let me talk more, then it'll come together. There is a kind of love... There is a kind of love which is basically... It can be reduced to a sense of belonging. There is no real desire to be close together. It's just a sense of belonging and edification. So that tends to be the love that people tend to have towards their siblings adult parents and children, right? Now, obviously, that's, that's not the entirety of the relationship, but there's a sense that somehow um, there's, a, there's a sense that we belong to each other, we're part, of, we're part of some kind of whole, called the family, whatever it is. Um, the explanation for this in Chassidus is that this has to do with the fact that at the core there is a deep unity between parents and children and consequently between siblings, and so in some sense, some part of you is present in your parents and is present in your children, is present in your siblings. So the kind of natural attachment you have to yourself also extends to you know, your parents, your children, your siblings, and by extension, the larger family group, all tribe, whatever. Okay? And what you should notice about that, that's really immaterial about who the other person is and their character. Okay, in other words, it's in a certain sense very impersonal. Because right? what is it about my brother that I, that, 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 like, what is it about us that, that binds us together is that he's my brother. Okay, but if my brother was a different person, he would still be my brother. So what does it have to do with his unique experiences, his character, his hopes, his dreams, his success? Not, nothing. Okay, which is, by the way, 
one of the things that happens when, when you go from being a child to being an adult, you pass through a stage where you are very uncomfortable with the fact that your parents love you because you're, the, because you're their children. Because when you've passed from being a child to being an adult, you're already trying to do to shape for yourself a sense of individual character, personality, and values. And so it's very important that you see yourself that way. It's very important others see you that way. And why do parents care about you? Because you're their child, which in those things don't matter. So it's very invalidating. The love which gives you that security when you're seven is invalidating when you're 15. Um, it's, not, it's not entirely invalidating. That's why being a teenager can be problematic. And then hopefully you become an adult, you integrate that back in and you have a good relationship with your parents. Hopefully. Okay. So that's one kind of love. There's another kind of love. And this kind of love, um, is where you become completely absorbed and you totally lose any sense of yourself. And therefore, you don't actually feel any desire. Okay? This is very hard to describe because very few people have experiences of this with other people due to the fact that we are very aware of ourselves, we're very, we, we've spent a lot of time checking in with ourselves, And so we very often have a hard time having this kind of an experience with another person. So I will give you experiences in relation to objects where we have this kind of a thing, okay? Anyone has ever had the experience of watching a really good movie? And during the time when you're watching the movie, you're completely unaware of yourself and your life? As if you are literally have your, your consciousness has kind of melted away into just being aware of the movie. You're not even aware, to the point that you're not even aware that you're watching the movie, okay? Um, sometimes people have this experience with eating food. Sometimes people have this experience by seeing a beautiful painting. Reading. Reading, right? Ideas can do this to people, right? And now, imagine having that with another person. That's a very profound kind of a... That kind of love is very different because in that kind of love, there's, 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 almost, there's not the sense of wanting to be close because in some sense, you've, you've melted away and all that's left is your awareness of the beloved. Like you don't even, you don't even at that point realize, you don't feel the love. Okay? This is called, uh, this is called, and it shows up later in time, this is called Ava Batainugim, a love of pleasure, a love of delight. Be, what? Ava betainugim. How do we spell that? Tough. Ava is Aleph, Hey, Vez, Hey, and betainugim. Bez, Tough, Ayin, Nun, Gimel. No, Nun, Vav, Gimel, Yud, Mem. Betainugim. Thank you. Um, and so that, that's. That's a very different kind of an experience. Now, what you'll notice is that both of those loves lack what we generally associate with love, which is desire. That's why I'm, that's why I'm, I'm separating these two things out. The sense of belonging that we feel towards our parents and our siblings doesn't, doesn't automatically come along with a sense that I, I need to be with them and have as much of them as I can. And the more I have, the more... It just, you, the, the sense of consuming desires is not part of that kind of a love. Things can happen to introduce elements of that, but it's not really what it's about. 
And then similarly, when a person completely loses themselves in something or someone else, there's also no sense of desire. What kind of love comes along with a feeling of desire? What are the criteria, what are the parameters for love that comes with desire? Yeah. You feel separate from that? You feel separate. So there's an awareness of the beloved, but there's still a distance from the beloved. Now, if you'll think about it, most of the things slash people we love, is that not the case? Like there's a dissonance between the fact that I'm aware of them and how close I am to them in actuality. And that dissonance creates the desire and that creates that pull and that creates that attraction. Yeah. Um, I'm told that in Shir Hashirim there are verses that refer to a love of a sister, like Achoti. So the thing is, this is is the problem with Hebrew, is that the word Ach... And achot, brother and sister in, in biblical Hebrew, do not exclusively mean siblings. So, it, it is a general term for deep but close companion. Because the, it's used synonymous with bride. Achaisikala, yeah. right. right. So it, 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 you know, as opposed to a, a marriage which is one of playing roles where there is someone is the husband and then someone is the wife. And, right? So... There's the idea, is, no, there's, 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 there's this deep friendship and camaraderie and closeness. That's why the word is used there. So it doesn't reference, it's not trying to reference this belonging kind of love. No, no. Because you're not allowed to marry your sister. Well, obviously it's not <laughs> meaning like a literal sister. No, but no, 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 yeah. If a sibling did feel the gasoline fire love for another sibling, would that be unhealthy? Yes. There's a Hasidic discourse, a short one that speaks about that. Do you know what it's called? The prohibition of incest. (laughs) (laughs) That's literally, to understand the prohibition of incest, that's the name of the discourse. There's actually, yeah. Because... Well, because there's mitzvahs in the Torah and there's discourses that explain the mitzvahs in the Torah. Like there's mitzvahs explaining tzitzis. There's discourses explaining Purim. There's discourses, ex- and so if incest is prohibited, there's explanation of that. Well, what, is you, what is specific about that love? What? What is specific about that love which makes it unhealthy um, the very the, the, the basic idea is that one of the characteristics of being a created being rather than being God is that things come at the expense of other things. Just on a very simple level, if this cup is here, it can't be there. If there's coffee in the cup, there can't be wine in the cup, right? There's this an idea of, of things being mutually exclusive, things precluding each other. And that's not just, that you can see very clearly physically, but it also applies to our psyche. So the, the, these loves really preclude each other in the human psyche. And therefore, the presence of one in any real, profound, real, not just real way, really is a denial of the other. And so that, now, which would therefore theoretically, I mean, if you didn't have that problem, there's no reason why incest would be prohibited, which is the point, which is because in Kabbalah, it actually does point out all the Kabbalistic unities are incestuous. There's like a father marrying his daughter and so the explanation is why in Kabbalah is it okay and then in real life it's not and the explanation is because the thing that makes these things prohibited 
is that our psyches are built that we, if you are in one mode, you, it, you cannot be in mutually exclusive modes. And that's not with all emotions. It's not with all emotions. It's very certain yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, just always remember, it's just because the Torah prohibits something, that means that that applies as, 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 a, as, a, as a statement about people as a kind. Individuals can be different, and if individuals are different, then there's, then there's the general Torah rule, which is um, your particular um, idiosyncrasies don't change the law. Okay, yeah. Um, could you differentiate what is some kind of like a codependency thing, like in romantic relationships, with like the absence of like a sense of self, I think, with the second type of love you were talking about? Like, you know, when someone is like completely infatuated with someone else and they have no, they don't have no understanding of like the other people around them? So, so, th- so I'm glad you asked that. Because codependency, and I'm not a psychologist, so I could be getting this wrong, but to my understanding, codependency is actually a kind of objectification of the other person. In other words, it's, it's, it's way far away from, from this. Because what codependency basically is that you make your life about dealing with someone else rather than facing yourself. So it's kind of like using, like a person would rather like watch a movie rather than uh, deal with the fact that they can't pay their mortgage. Right? And we all understand the unhealthiness of that. Okay. Well, an extreme version of that kind of thing is I will now be, I will now be the, the, the liver of your life as opposed to having to deal with my life, which by the way means two things. I am blinded to my own self. So it's not even, you can't even really call that true desire because I'm not, it's not like, it's not like I, there's no sense of, 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 of really my inner self. I mean, there's a certain sense of being in, detached and alienated from yourself that goes with that. So, so there's that element. And then the other element is there's no respect for the other person in such a relationship. In which case, so what it is, is you have a need to avoid yourself and you fulfill that by obsessing over someone else. Okay, what I'm talking about is more like the sense like, um, you're in a person's presence that you really love and like your mind almost melts away. Like you don't, you're not aware of how much time passes. You're not even aware that you're enjoying sitting there with them. Like there's ze- like, you're, like that, that total absorption in their presence. And that, by the way, that's key because this kind of a love, this avatunugam requires their actual presence which is kind of the opposite, because when in, in, in the codependency, even if they're physically there, they're not there in your mind because you've just objectified them. So it's very, very, very different. Yeah. Um, somebody today in one of our classes was explaining something, and she was doing it in a very adorable way, and someone said, you're so cute, I don't even know what you just said. Is that, like, related to that at all, or is that just, like, side incident? It could be. It's hard to get into people's minds. It could be that it could it could be that there's something about you know, just transfixed her and for a moment and she totally blanked. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's. But again, the question is that a love of the person or is a love of some? No, I'm saying is that what you're describing? Where you're just like, oh my gosh, I just love like this person is just so adorable. I just love yeah, but you but but if you have if you have the reflexive awareness that I love, then that's not what this is. Like in the experience of, of Ava Batanugim, um, there isn't, you don't have enough reflexive ego to be able to even 
narrate back to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm loving. Oh, I'm having this experience. That's why, you know, the examples of movies and books and things like that are... And to have that with a sense of the other person, with the full depth of who they are as a, as a person, not just a particular aspect of them, not just that they, they, they look beautiful or, or they're cute, but who they are internally, yeah. Um, you know, you just like, you, you, you don't even realize how much you enjoy being with them. And you're not even aware as it's happening. It's a totally different... I'm not saying it's impossible, just those experiences, unfortunately, are, are rarer than... Uh, there, was, there were two chassidim, I'll tell you a story, and then you can ask a question. There, the, when the previous Rebbe, the sixth Chabad Rebbe, bottom left, when he was a young boy, he wanted to um, um, part, spy on these two chassidim. These two chassidim, one of them was his, was his teacher, the Rashbats, that was an acronym for his name, Rib Shmuel Batsalo, and I forgot who the other one was. And they used to have private for Brengans, just the two of them. They would lock the show, it was just the two of them. And he, the, he really wanted to know what was going on. So he knew when they were gonna have one of these for Brengans, and he stayed in the show and hid under a bench, um, which was like a big deal because he was a very sensitive person. Um, and the bench was very dirty and there was like, also, it hadn't been cleaned in who knows how long under the bench, and there was like spiders crawling there, and he was like very uncomfortable. But he really wanted to see what this Fabrengan, these secret Fabrengans. And um, so he waits there, and a few hours go by, and it's later, and the two chassidim come in, they lock the door, they sit down, they take out a small bottle of vodka, um, and they take out two glasses, they pour a glass for each one, they look at each other, and then they start crying. And they keep staring at each other and they cry. And they stare and they cry. And hours go by and all that happens is they stare at each other. And it's not like, like, like there's kind of crying where like you're crying and there's crying more where like just the tears stream down your face kind of crying. It was that kind of a crying. Like they weren't even in the, like not even like aware like that. The... And after a few hours go by, they kind of like come back to themselves and they pour the mashka back into the bottle. And that was the whole fabric. They didn't say anything to each other. They didn't, sing any songs, they didn't, nothing. Now, that kind of closeness with another person, that's this, you totally, you're not, you're not even aware of what's happening to you. You're, you're, it's, it's ascribed as dissolving. Did okay. find out that he I don't know. <laughs> but I'm happy that he spied because now we have the record of what happened. Okay. So yeah, I mean, look, and you, people have this. People have this sometimes with their spouses or with a dear friend. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's not saying it's 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 just not one of those everyday, you know, occurrences. It's not unhealthy. No. No. Because think of how do you get that way with another person? How well do you have to know them? How much do you have to genuinely care about them? How vulnerable do you have to be with them before you get to that kind of a place? Right. If you're codependent, that's never going to happen. Yeah. Right. If you're if you're objectifying them, that can never happen. There's so many things that prevent us from having that with another person. Again, to have that with, to have that sense with a, with with the beauty of a painting or the or or the narrative of a story is is much easier. Which is often why in Chassidus that, that analogy is used because it's more relatable. That's more everyday kind of occurrence. Yeah. Is it a natural consequence to just? Oh. No, so that's the thing. Is, is it is a natural consequence to a certain level of intimacy. 
So if you haven't achieved that level of intimacy, it's impossible, which is again, why you need their actual presence there. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because in our discussion of love, generally, when we're speaking about love, and especially in chapter three, the love is this love, the normal love that most we're familiar with, which is a love of desire. I know something about the beloved that makes them beloved to me and therefore I wanna be closer to them. And then because it's genuine love, what happens is I actually get closer. I'm like, oh, Baruch Hashem, now I'm closer. No, now my sense of desire has intensified. Right? And this, by the way, is because since there's, every person is so much richer and deeper than, every, than, than, than you can ever possibly know, no matter how close you get, it's like the horizon, and as you move towards the horizon, what happens? It moves further away. Yes? So it's dissolving of self as a natural consequence of the proximity? Mm-hmm. And proximity in an emotional sense, not physical proximity. I mean, you, you would need physical proximity also, but that's not enough. What if you only have emotional proximity and not physical? Then you, couldn't, then you would have desire because emotional proximity means I, I know you very well. We've had a lot of shared experiences, but you're still over there doing other things. And therefore, I have a desire to go to where you are or to have you come to where I am. So that's, again, a love with the desire. So just to make it really pretty, can we say that the first kind of love is, needs physical proximity the second needs both, and the last needs emotional? No, all love... No. The, 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 the first kind of love, which was the, 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 like the familial bond, that, is an, that has to do with a facet of just your existence. You were, cre- you were created as the outgrowth of other people, and therefore you have a bond with them and a sense of belonging to them that's rooted deep in your makeup. Nothing to do with whether you like it or not. Hence the quest for who is my mother. Okay. <laughs> then there's a totally separate issue. You as an individual like someone. That's the normal kind of love we think about. And then there's this other kind of experience altogether where you don't like them. Not that you dislike them, but somehow like the line between you and them has dissolved. And that, that's an experience. And in order for that experience to happen, there's a lot of prerequisites. Physical proximity, emotional intimacy, vulnerability, yeah, and then that could happen. Emphasis on the word could. By the way, if you try to make it happen, will it happen? No. Okay. And then there's the normal love we talk about. I like someone, so I want to get closer to them. And if I really like them for something about who they really are, what happens when I get closer to them? In any manner of closeness, I discover I like them even more. And if that's not happening, then there's some element of objectification was going on. If your love fizzles out, that means there was, it wasn't, it wasn't, you weren't loving them as someone, you were loving them as something. Yeah? How does loving, um, when you love someone for no reason, you just love them, like with the love of somebody, um, you So... I didn't want to bring this up because you asked, I'll answer it. So there is this other kind of a love, which is that I, I love someone for a reason. There's something about them which I, I, I really am, I'm, I admire and I'm attracted and I want to be with them, and, you know, whatever it is, yeah, okay? 
What happens when you realize, as you get closer, you realize the fragility of your relationship and you don't like it and they don't like it? No. So human beings have this amazing gift given by God, which is to make a covenant. And a covenant is to, to bind yourself to this love in a way that goes beyond the justification of the love itself. So that even when really the, the experiences that, that this love was built on become no longer sufficient, the love is still, this love is still accessible, the love is still it's present. Love. Yeah, it's a way of, it's a, what you, it's a, it's, it's a, what's happening is, is that there's this, there's this process that a person is committing themselves to, to a place, committing themselves beyond what they've experienced. Um, and what that does is that allows a person to, to be able to, to maintain or to rekindle a love even when there's no longer any justification. The thing I loved about them is gone. Is that marriage? It can happen in marriage. It doesn't have to. When you talk about a commitment, so it's like, is that like an official signed document commitment? Or like... No, it's a commitment one makes within themselves. So that's called a that's 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 called a that's called a bris. It's called a you know I just a bris. That's what a bris is. That's a covenant. Um, it's like the love of even if you don't feel it anymore, yeah. It's like a form of what we have. Right, and so so you have that like there's there there was once a, there was once a, a, a febrengen in Kfar Chabad with a, there was an older chassid who had who had been in yeshiva in Lubavitch in Russia. And um, to Febrengen came this guy from this professor. And they sat down. They started Febrengen together, and and someone asked like, "How can you?" Febrengen? Like, and this professor was was known to be very atheistic, and not just atheistic, like anti-religious. Like this so was in the early days of uh, Israel, where there was like this whole trend of people who had grown up religious and like were anti-Judaism. And he came to Febrengen. They were Febrengen together. And they were schmoozing. They were talking, and there was like there was a depth and a warmth. So I was like, how can you do this? He says, what do you mean? He's my brother. It wasn't his biological brother. What had happened? They had both been in yeshiva together in Lubavitch. And there, they had shared experiences and they loved each other. And, they and at some point, not necessarily formally, what had happened? They had made some kind of a commitment to that relationship that goes beyond their shared experience, beyond what they could admire in each other. And so even when one of them started to really live a life that was antithetical to the other one, that didn't take away from the love, okay? So there is this unique kind of a process where you can almost turn a relationship that's really about desire and add an element of genuine belonging. That's, that's it's almost like, it's not there's differences, Chassidah speaks about the differences between them, but that's what David, that's when Chassidah speaks about David and Yohannes, and that's the classic example of that. They had shared experiences, they had shared values, they really genuinely appreciate each other, enjoy spending time with each other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they, whether formally or otherwise, made a kind of commitment to each other and to themselves that that sense of, of love would go deeper than simply a desire to be together. And so, yeah, there, we have that ability to kind of create this in-between kind of a thing. That's also what Hashem did with Abraham when he, when he, when he made a covenant with Abraham. Right, that's why I was at a bris yesterday. That's what that bris is all about. Okay, fine. But the generic kind of love, the love of Muslim is a love of desire. I appreciate something or someone, and because I appreciate it, I want to be close. 
whatever the kind of closeness is, you know, if it's fish, it's usually I want to be close to the taste and texture of the fish in my mouth. Um, right? Yeah. Or, or close to observing the beauty of the fish. Right? Or close to understanding the biological reality of the fish, depending on what exactly about the fish I love. Right? Okay. Same thing with people. Now, so that's the kind of love we're dealing with. Now, because we're saying that the love is generated because we reflected on the greatness of Hashem. Well, what kind of love could come as a result of realizing what makes Hashem great? It's not a love of inherent belonging. It's also not a love of just like dissolving into it. It's a love of there's something about Hashem which really resonates with me. That Hashem has become, through that his bainus, Hashem has become beloved to me. Whatever it is. And because of that, I now have a desire to be closer. Now, by the way, what's going to happen when you get closer? You want to be closer? You're going to want to be closer. And what happens when you get closer? Mm-hmm. You're going to be closer. Okay. So what about people who were religious and then fall from their faith? So, they were close to God and now they're not. Wow. So, no. Not necessarily. I mean, yes, that could be the case, but no, not necessarily. Because being religious and being close to God are not synonymous. Or somebody who was spiritual and then becomes an atheist. Well, that's because, so, so that's better. Um, and the, 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 the reason is that, that just because something is in and of itself um, self-perpetuating doesn't mean other things can't come along and destroy it. So for instance, it could be that I love someone and therefore I want to be closer to them. And then I get closer, I want to be closer, and then I get closer and closer and closer, yeah? And then they betray me. Okay, well, the love would have kept going, but then they betrayed me, right? Okay. So how many, there are a lot of people that, there were a lot of people who, who, who abandoned Hashem after the Holocaust because they felt betrayed. There's many, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, the laws of rebuke are, are, are a lot, much more sensitive than people often think. And it takes in account where the person is coming from and where, how your words are going to be received, yes. Um, in fact, I mean, so, so there, there was a sense of being, you know, when, when, when someone feels betrayed by, by their beloved, I mean, that creates a challenge to the love. So when we say the love won't fizzle out, that's talking about the love in and of itself, it doesn't, but, but we're complex. We're not just love machines, right? There's a whole range of different things that go on in our lives and in our experiences. And so, yeah, other things can create problems, for sure. Yeah. Would that generally be, I mean, someone who's be more susceptible to that happening if there's no commitment element in their love? If they have that commitment element, it's much less likely Yes, happen. yes. But also, also yeah, because commitment is like, also comes in degrees and kinds and forms. I mean, it, 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 it also has to do, one of the things it has to do is whether the love has a, one of the things that often has to do is that oftentimes love has an, um, a naivete built into it. And that makes that love very brittle. Um, this actually will, this is a white topical. Many people who become religious have this problem, is that their love for Hashem and Torah and mitzvahs is naive. They don't see what it really is. They only see the part. They don't, you know, so you don't see the whole person. You just see the part you want to see. 
And then what happens when you discover it's not what you thought it was? Walk away. Well, that's also, by the way, happens in every marriage. I didn't say in some marriages. I didn't say in most marriages. I said in... Whatever... No, not specifically to you. It happens to every marriage. The, 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 the joke is that eventually, you know, the joke is that after Sheva Brachas, the spouses realize that they married the wrong person. Because it turns out... I've never heard that joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, the thing you do right after Sheva Brachas is you check to make sure that it was really the person you thought you were marrying. Because it turns out that they're not... Yeah, there was, there was one time a, a Bachar who was learning in a non-Chabad Yeshiva and wanted to go to Chabad Yeshiva. So he went to visit for Shabbos. And he came back and he, and he told the... He, 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 he had this... He was learning with a, with a Chabad rabbi and he said, I loved it, it was amazing, it was wonderful, it was this. I think I should go. And he said, no, I shouldn't. Maybe, you know, maybe go back for another Shabbos in like two or three months. Two or three months he comes back, he says, you know... Like, you know, there's this, and he like has his criticisms. But I think I still want to go, so okay, now you can go. Right? When you, when, uh, my, my mentor told me when you're, I mean, this is, again, there's, there's degrees this. My mentor told me, my mentor told me when I was dating, that if you can't tell me what you find problematic about the person before you marry them, you shouldn't be marrying them. Because then there's way too much, there's some degree of naivety, but there's, there's, there's like too much naivety. So there's a problem. That, and so, yeah, a person can grow up in a very, they have this very, you know, sense of Hashem, and I'm from, and we, I do Torah and mitzvahs and keep Shabbos, and we have a little shtetl, and of course Hashem is going to, you know, just make everything work out. And then the Nazis come and like, what that idyllic picture that I thought? Well, okay, but that was part of it was because the person was naive. And so when love is naive, it, it's not as resilient. Things are taken as betrayals when they're not necessarily betrayals, they're just complicated. Yeah. Does this whole Hasidic viewpoint believe that there's any sort of thing like love at first sight, or is that just totally made up garbage? Sure, there's love. It's a pasuk. It's a verse in the Torah. Which is Yitzchak loved Rivka at first sight. So how does that? Where? How does that fit into any of this? I guess it depends on what you see, doesn't it? Mm. Some people can see other people. Most of us see flesh. Mm-hmm. Some of us even see mannerisms. Some of us see personality. Some people can see. A soul? Yeah, is that you common? S- no. So is, most people who say they have love at first sight, that's an objectification. Usually, which is why, like, once you, like, break down the, what, once you break down the marriage after the love at first sight, there was, like, a lot of, like, problems that they had to work through. Now, it doesn't mean that there's... So, 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 okay, so I'm saying this kind of... This kind of to, to love someone as someone at first sight is not impossible, but it is... Now, it could be the case that, you, that there's, there's love, which is, which, is, which is very intense and very powerful, and it might be superficial, but it creates the kind of closeness to then get to know the person in a deeper way. That happens. That's very common. Right? There's a chemistry. There's something about the person, and then you spend more time with them, and then you find out that you actually get to know them, and you do love the person, right? So it's not the original love. What? That's not... I don't know. My grandma and I were talking yesterday and she was trying to convince me that she fell in love with my grandfather at first sight. And I was like, even my grandfather was like, I don't think that's true. But <laughs> I was just like, is there even, like, does Hasidus even believe that that's like a, a thing? Like, <laughs> if you can see the person really as the person at first sight, which again can happen, 
then yeah, but I think most of that's usually just that there's a, there's a spark and there's a chemistry, which makes it easy to get along with the person, to spend time with them, and you really desire that. And there's a, there's a heavy element of objectification, and yet you're able to work past that, and, and that turns into a genuine love for the person. And I think that's usually what people mean when they say it was love at first sight. The love that was at first sight is not the love that carried them through 50 years of marriage. It's not the same love. But you, know, you can use one single spark to light a whole bonfire. That is true. Yes. Not necessarily with regards to love at first sight, but this idea that there are some people who can like meet people and see their souls. Would that include or is it like a completely different thing when people are like, No, my intuition is like really good. Like I meet people and I just kind of know instantly whether they're like gonna No, that's something else because we I'll give you an example. Doctors are really good at diagnosing people, especially emergency room doctors. Now, if you were to stop an emergency room doctor and start to ask them, like, okay, give me the whole rundown of like the diagnostic procedures, you'll find, and it's disturbing, that they really often can't because they offload a lot of it into their unconscious mind. So like if they go back and they study, it'll come back to them. But but and this is true with any person. Um, a lot of uh, you know a lot of things that we are so good at is what is that we're able to do unconsciously without paying conscious attention to it. What other people have to actually pay, use conscious attention for. Why would that be disturbing? Well, because when you ask the emergency room doctor, yeah. like, can I can you like explain what's going on? Yeah. And you start to see like they're speaking in vague generalities. Yeah. It, it it can give you the sense of should I really be trusting this person? Um, but this is true, like, I'm just using the, so some people are very good at kind of, people tend to deal, people tend to have, you know, personality types and, I mean, can you can, there's a whole science of it's the psych, personality psychology of like, people are universal in one sense and, and, and just different in other senses, but those differences are not individual, they're actually type, you know, and so there are some people who are just very, just in, in, um, good at and instead of like going through a conscious diagnostic process of asking this question, doing this, of picking up subtle clues and unconsciously slotting people into certain types of people, and therefore they can pick up very quickly. I, as a teacher, have become very good at this, dealing with certain kinds of things in, in, in the context of teaching over the years. Like I start to realize, like, like okay, when a person starts speaking like this, I think almost 99% of the time, this is what they're coming from, this is what they're dealing with, and this is how you answer that kind of question if you want to get this response. And it's not like I could set out, it's just the things you get up from experience and they go into your unconscious mind. That's very good, but you're not, you're not but, then you, but, but you're, what you're doing is you're still relating to the person as type, not as an individual. So, you see what I'm saying? It's not, it's not the same kind of thing that we're talking about here. It's, it's, there's, there's an element of objectification going on. Not necessarily a malicious one, um, you know, and my wife, she's an English teacher. She has that in English teaching. And like, you know, you speak to anybody who does anything or, or really well, you'll see that they have that kind of ability to unconsciously categorize things, people and issues, right? Usually accurately, especially if they're getting feedback all the time. That's why emergency room doctors was the example I used. Doctors that you have to wait an appointment six months for and they never follow up with you. <laughs> it's a different story. Yeah. Yeah, that's why like in a classroom, there's just certain, like, like aside from the fact of respect for the other students, 
Like if you only know someone from a classroom setting, you're only knowing them type because that's the only thing that comes through. You know, you're not, ha you're not having time to get to know them, you know, in their own unique individual experiences. I mean, because sometimes it's happened like, like incidentally. But if you're, if you're mentoring someone, then, then yeah, you have to give them the space to, to present their own unique experiences and you to address that. Yeah, that's, more, that's very much more individual. Yeah. What does it mean to be close to God? We will get to that later in Tanya. How much later? <laughs> mm, some in chapter three and mostly in chapter four. So, yes. How does the concept of unconditional love? Um, depends what you mean by condition, doesn't it? Every love is unconditional. If you want to be very specific about what kind of conditions you're willing to employ and if you want to speak about unconditional love refer to any condition then I would argue that that doesn't really exist give me an example of unconditional love because even for the first one with your family like it's conditional on something so, so awful. well no, I'm, that's not necessarily true then the love would just be manifest in the sense of like if my brother were to be god forbid a mass murderer I would feel a deep sense of shame there are plenty of mass murderers in the world I don't feel a deep sense of shame <laughs> Right, but, but so the love is now manifest as shame. That sense of belonging is still there. It's just tinged very negatively. So in that sense, would you say that the first type of love would be unconditional? But it's conditional in being my brother, isn't it? If I discover he's not my brother. <laughs> right, you see what I'm saying? Like, like, unconditional, it's a very vague term. So unconditional means doesn't depend on what they do. Lots of love doesn't depend on what the person does. Any love that's deep enough will transcend certain degree of transgression, right? But zero conditions? Well, if you have zero conditional love, you can just, I love this chair. Why? It's unconditional. It doesn't depend on that. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, even a love for God is conditional on him being God. <laughs> right? You see what I'm saying? Like, like that's where the, the term becomes so, do you mean it's not conditional on misbehavior? Most, almost every love of someone is unconditional on on most misbehavior. Because when you love someone, part of it is you see them as a person. You see the complexity of experience, which means you don't reduce them to their behaviors. So only gross betrayals can really threaten that. And then like you can have like that covenantal type where you move it to covenant, even then a gross betrayal won't it. And if it's this, 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 you know, this family bond, it, it's conditional on, it's conditional on your existential reality, nothing to do with what anybody does. Right? So I'm saying, when you say condition, you have to first figure out what, what do you mean by conditions? When you say parents love their children unconditionally. Yeah, as long as they're actually their children, right? It's an unfortunate thing, but people have discovered that someone they thought was their child was not. Now that becomes very individual. But that was, now, but but but, but, but that's but that's a different. That's a love that, that, that there's a, there's a love that ideally parents have from raising their children that has nothing to do with the fact that they're their children. That same love you have for good kindergarten teachers have for the kids in their class to a lesser degree. You know, any person who invests in another care for another person develops a kind of love. This is why, you know, um, you know, nurses often develop 
affection for, for people they care for, teachers to students. That, that, so obviously, if you're, if you're raising a person, even if they're not your child, that, that develops a whole kind of love of its own. But that might still last. But if you have one and not the other, it's, like, it's a very tragic thing. But there are plenty of you know, issues that come up in all sorts of circumstances where people find out children weren't really their children. And it doesn't always end well. Yeah? Um, in a situation where someone adopts a child, either like totally random child, like random, or like they get married and they adopt that person's existing child, like is there, is there some level on which that will never be the same love as... Yes. It doesn't have that, it doesn't have that existential belonging quality. Okay. But that existential belonging quality is very, very subtle and in the background, as we've said. But if they raise them mm -hmm. and they care for them, which is the kind of love that parents tend to experience more, more um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Acutely. I just got, acutely. Then on that level, there may not be a difference at all. And in fact, it's possible if they have biological children and not biological children, it may be easier for them to have that kind of love with their non-biological children because they're a more able to in, invest in caring for them without any kind of expectation. One of the, you know this thing that your parents want you to be something very specific sometimes? Right. Well, that comes because on some level they have a sense that they are perpetuated in you. So your success is, is literally their success. So, and if that's absent, it often gives you the ability to care for a person more for who they are as an individual, which brings it up. So it's, do, do the parent, does a parent like that need to like, work extra hard to make sure that like, they have one child that's both of theirs and one child that's hers? Does he have to work extra hard to make sure that both children feel that he loves them equally? Because you don't want the kid to feel like this person who's been telling me he's my dad my whole life, especially when these things happen when the kid is like one, two years old, right? You don't want to at some point be like, oh, well, it turns out my dad actually loves his biological son more than he ever loved me. Like, so I'll tell you like this. I think that these kinds of questions have no answers and are actually, the question themselves are destructive. I think if you point the locus of the question and say, what does the child need and am I capable of providing it? And what a child needs growing up is to feel that they have a, a home. And that is a difficult thing to achieve, even if you have biological. But like, I have seven kids, and some, you know, it's very easy that one child all of a sudden feels that, that every other child has a home and they don't have a home because they're not getting their whatever it is. And, and yeah, that's a hard thing to deal with. And if you put it in a framework of what does the child need psychologically and am I capable from providing it? And if so, how do I go about doing it? Rather than worrying about equalizing levels of, that, that abstracts it to the point where it's, it's, it's like, I don't think that's the right way to approach it. And it's not feasible to approach it that way. And you also know that you're going to fail because you're limited. You're not going to be perfect. And so you're not going to be able to provide everything everybody needs. Like just get used to that now. Yes, and then we will learn some of the text this inside. Might be, this might be, yeah, this is about the text. This might be stupid. We're on this line that says next his heart will glow with an intense love, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about this love, but I don't know. Maybe we did talk about this and maybe I was lost. Like, what is intense? That's what we're going to get to. Okay. Okay. So now we're going to get to the text. Next, so after the dread, his heart will glow with an intense love. Okay. Now, what does it say in the Hebrew? It's, um, it's, it, the, the, the word there used is, is a, a, his heart will become a flame with an intense love. Flare? Yeah. Aza. Uh, what? Aza is intense. Yislahev. 
Lahav is a flame in the Hebrew. So when it says here in the English, where is it? Will glow, right? That glowing is like imagine you have like a fire, and the fire actually there's flames. And it's, okay, now. Okay, now. What does it feel like when you desire someone? And I want to say absent obstacles. In other words, like we all know that if you love someone and they're far away and you can't talk to them, like that, that, that complicates the issue. I'm saying you just... What does it feel like to actually love someone? What is, it, what is it actually, what is that quality like? And again, I'm talking about love that has an element of the, of the desire to be close to someone. What does it feel like when you feel like a desire to be close to someone? Yeah. It's a pleasant frustration. Why is there a frustration? Because you're not where you want to be. But just you can, who said you can't do anything about it? The frustration. But it's perpetuating. The, but the, the frustration, I want to be very, very clear. The frustration comes from that you're being frustrated. Something's preventing it. So... If there is no frustration, I, like, what? We're, we're gonna get to the unit. I want to describe the actual feeling. Like, what is it? This is hard to describe feelings. Mm-hmm. Do you feel tense? Let's start there. It's hard to describe an intense feeling. Do you? Does you feel tense? Do you tense up? Some people can. Generally, yeah. no. No. Are you saying in general? Yeah. Yeah. In general, do you feel tense? No, in gen- when you have a desire to be closer to someone, uh, let's rem- let's and pretend there's no obstacles to getting close to them. Okay, we realization there's obstacles that creates a whole level of complexity. Does it feel tense? No, it doesn't feel tense. Oh, it's intense. Yeah, but it doesn't feel you don't you don't tense up. Yeah. Does do you feel inhibited? You, 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 I mean, look. But let's just use a real life example so we can make a point of reference. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen a friend mm-hmm. you haven't seen for a while? Mm-hmm. You saw them. Yeah? Okay. How did you feel? You saw them. They're over there. So now you have to actually go over there, right? So There's no like, obstacles, right? Right? So excited. Like energized. There's, there's warmth. You feel energized. What? There's an internal propulsion. Good. What else? Yeah, comfortable. It's like an excitement you can't control. Okay, th- there's comfortable, there's an excitement. You're like warm. Warm. Yeah? Complete. What? Mm, complete is a little tricky because... You're not there yet. Oh, so a lot... Things that, things, that are, things that bother you, were weighing on you, what happens at that moment? They're off your shoulders, They're off your shoulders right? Like a clarity. Stress-free. Yeah? Yeah. There's like an inner glow, an inner warmth. And I feel like there's a safety to that relationship. Like now that they're right in front of you, like versus when you were away from them, it's like when you're away, it's like, oh, are they moving on? Are they like talking to like other friends? Are they like, they forget about you? How, how long has it been since you've texted them? Like right. That? That's when you add the fact that there's obstacles to overcome. So I'm saying separate that out. So the first moment when you, when you feel this love, right? Right? It's, it, the, the way it's described, I mean, in the English they translate it as a glowing in the heart. 
right? Or in the Hebrew, it's more of like a, 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 there's a, there's a, there's a flame in the heart. It's like someone, you know, there was like a, there was like a, like a fireplace and someone turned on the fire. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. That feeling can be intense or not intense, right? That's why it's intense. In Hebrew, the altar adds the word aza, intense. What makes a feeling intense versus not intense? Like, like if we had to be like scientific about that, where's the cutoff between an intense feeling versus not an intense feeling? Urging and strong versus not. Yeah, they're feelings that you can ignore. And there are feelings you can ignore. And there are feelings that you can't ignore. Right? Right? There are feelings like, oh, I'm feeling the feeling, and then you just move on, and then it was as if it never happened, right? It doesn't require, you don't need to work through any process. It's just like, it's like a wave, and if you just move on, it'll dissipate. And then there are feelings that are not like that. Right? They, 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 they compel attending to. You need to, they, they, they draw you into deal with the fact that I'm feeling this way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Right? So using the friend, you see your friend, they're over there, and you feel this feeling, but you're in the middle of a conversation with another person. So sometimes, like I see them, like we'll get to them in a minute, and then sometimes like, you can't keep y'all going on the conversation because you have to go. I have to go to my friend, right? So one, is, well, one will call an intense, and one is not intense. What's the difference? The non-intense one, you can just like, put it in the and this means I, I, I have, to, have to respond to that. So when you guys you should be intense and not intense. Because I feel like every time you see your I, husband, you can't be like, wait, hold on, my husband's already here. Like, why not? Why not? Because you, like, let's say I'm at work and, like, my husband comes and, like, like pulls the car around. I can't be like, oh my gosh, I have to go. Like, if I'm in the middle of something. Let's... Well, you know what? Let's I, say I, I would... the cops and I have a patient. I can't be like, wait, my husband. Like, well, I'll tell you like this. If you, if every spouse were to feel that way about their spouse and then every then people would have great marriages. Not everyone's married. No, just that, like, like so that, that would actually... You can't help, like, what if, you know, if you're going to... Now, by the way, by the way, by the way, to be, just because the feeling is that doesn't mean you can't put it aside. Oh, okay. Right? Because at the end of the day, every person has, you know, right? we're not talking about it, we're not talking about... But, but what's the nature of the feeling? Ah, makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. Like sometimes, like I have an important conversation, I really like on a practical level can't stop, and then they see this my friend, right? So I can, I can as a as an act of will, okay. you know, suppress that feeling for later. Okay, but but the fact that I have to use an act of will, the feeling says I, I'm pay attention to me, and then there are feelings like you feel, and the move on. Yes, someone else had a question. Okay. All right. Now, so what would this mean? The person, all of a sudden, the very fact that there is such a being as God, how does that make them, and I want to emphasize this word, feel. Not what do they believe, not what do they do, how do they feel. They thought about this being called God, what is God like, what makes God great, right? And what happens? There was a, whoa, this is real, blah, blah, blah. And then they feel, they don't feel tense. 
They don't feel uh, burdened. All the other stuff that was going on, what, what, ha what happened to all of that? It's lifted off their shoulders, it all disappears, and they feel this warmth, this uninhibitedness, an inner glow, and it's intense. It's the kind of thing that if they wanted to not react to, they would need willpower not to react to it. They feel this way, why? Because they, in their own mind, have become aware of how, for, I'm using this word because it's the great word grammatically, lovely God is. Okay. By the way, does this correlate to how many mitzvahs a person does necessarily? Someone who's deathly afraid that God will burn them in hell will also do a lot of mitzvahs. That doesn't mean they feel this way about God, right? Okay. So this is a feeling. This is, it's a, and this is how you actually, right? So a person who, who you, know, you know how you can tell if someone doesn't love God? They, feel, they, they walk around being uptight about everything. Like someone, someone who's in love, any kind of love, they're feeling that kind of experience of love. They're not uptight. No, because that's called lying to yourself. <laughs> you, because if you really feel the love, you wouldn't be stressed. That's the point. Well, maybe that makes it, maybe we've discovered is that it's kind of hard to be loving God all the time. Yeah. Because loving God, it's not like this check mark, you know, like, like yarmulke on my head, tzitzis on, you know. No, I'm, I'm set to go. It's not, it doesn't work like that. It's a feeling. <laughs> And yes, if you're stressed and the stresses are really big, it's kind of hard to have this kind of his burdenness and this awareness. Yeah, which is why you might need to like figure out how to work this into your, you know, your lifestyle rather than just like, it's not just a check mark. I love God, right? This is why, by the way, in Chabad, when a person says they love God, everyone on Chabad looks at them like, who are you deluding? Like, what, what kind of like fantasy world are you living in? Right? Because like, what do you mean you like... Like you mean that as a you, you, you mean you mean you are actually having this feeling right now? Maybe sometimes, right? But, but like it's not an it's it's you know. Shouldn't there be just like kind of like underlying? I guess that would be the only thing that I could kind of compare it to. Like this always like wanting to be closer, always wanting to, and I feel like that's kind of a love, no? Well, and you know what? People that genuinely feel that that means there's other kinds of things they can't be feeling at that time. And if they feel that all the time, then? You can't love a person that's the same time? No, you could, but you can't be worried about missing the bus. Okay. So people that are worried about missing the bus? Don't love God at that moment? That's right. They don't love their wives also at that moment. Okay. Or their children. I'm talking as feelings, not as existential reality. They don't even love the thing that they're listening to in their like earphones. You know why? Because what happens when you really love what you're listening to? What happens about your anxiety about missing the bus? See? It's a feeling. Like we're, we're not talking about, you know, a, a, a thing, you know, that you, you know, uh, uh, that you check off. This is a feeling and it's cultivated and has to be maintained. And when you're feeling one thing, yeah, feelings come at the expense of other feelings, which can be good and bad. Yeah. Someone who has some, like, high anxiety, or are you saying like they can't or don't love God as much as the next person who doesn't? 
I would say someone who has high anxiety has a problem loving in general. Mm-hmm. And that, loving anyone or themselves? Mm-hmm. Including themselves. Which is why the inability to manage anxiety makes it very hard to have pers- deep personal relationships with people. That's not, a, that's, not a, that's not a moral criticism, it's just a fact. Which is what makes you know, an anxiety disorder painful. It's not just like it's not just that the person like it's not just like the person can't like do certain things which would be bad enough, mm-hmm. but it really ma- it really creates a, sh- a level of artificialness and shallowness. I I I'm a of, of 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 people that some of them have anxiety disorders and like, and it's it's very hard for you know loving people like again I'm not talking about loving in this existential sense I'm talking about love as an actual feeling it's hard it makes it very very difficult and the, these things are, are you know there's ways of dealing with them the tiny is but, but what the tiny is talking about is love is the actual experience of love look there are people that when their friends show up they get anxious because for whatever reason instead of instead of feeling love all of a sudden it's like oh, my friend is here am I, am I presenting myself and like and so like it's an interesting question. What do you mean that this person is your friend? Right? This is an issue. It's like, I have friends that when I see them, I don't think what they, I don't care what they think about me. Not because like, I'm callous, but because like, I feel that warmth. And there are other people, like, you know, are they my friends in the sense of like, do I find it interesting to spend time in their company? Yes. But have I become very self-conscious also? Yes. I wouldn't say that I feel love towards them. Something else. Yeah, it's just, if we're going to be honest about emotional experiences as emotional experiences, then we have to be honest that there's a range of emotional experiences and love does feel like something. When you're feeling that, you're not feeling, you're not feeling emotions which are completely um, contradictory. Yeah. When you have a fight or something uh, straining happens between yourself and a person that you love, can you simultaneously feel that you love them and feel some sort of negative, like, I don't like this? Maybe yeah. Anxiety, well, so, so I mean, I mean, emotions are very interesting because they're not, like, boxed in. But there's a very big difference between um, fighting with someone that you love and fighting with someone that you don't love. And I'm talking about the feeling of love. Sure. It is a different feeling. When you're fighting with someone that you love... The, the, the thing is trying to figure out how to like get past the fight. Mm-hmm. And what's mutually frustrating is that is like you feel and hopefully the other person feels like there's this wall in between the two of you. You're both trying to figure out where the break in the wall is and you keep like bumping heads. Mm-hmm. That's a very different kind of experience where, where you're trying to, where, where it shifts to trying to beat the other person. You're trying to, it's trying to win the fight. Right. No, I don't. And when that kind of fighting happens between people, then they're no longer feeling love towards each other. And sometimes, sometimes the stress of trying to fight in the way that brings you closer together triggers all sorts of more natural defensiveness kinds of things. And then the nature of the fight. I mean, look, you can, you can, you know, if you, you can see like in friends and couples these two different dynamics and, and some people easily switch from one to the other and it's very bad. Um, but what is, what is the, like in the first kind, the, the healthy kind of like there's a wall between us and we're both trying to find a break in it, what is that like, kind, like it can be like anxiety, maybe not in, in the moment, like I don't know, not all tensions are resolved Oh, because remember what I said, remember what, remember what I, remember the, 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 the tensions, 
love, love removes the tension. But love can also become a source for new tensions when you add elements of frustration. So just to use a very simple example, I love someone and they're in jail. Well now because I love them becomes the, and then you add on that they're in jail, now that becomes a basis. But that's a different kind of thing, right? So there's the, there's what I, want I want to talk about the feeling of love on its own before you layer into the fact that there are things preventing me from getting closer. What you're talking about is that if you're in love and there's something preventing you from getting closer, now hold, but that's a different kind of a stress. And it feels different. Yes. <laughs> right? It's not like the anxiety of missing the bus. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're going to have to end here and continue tomorrow and talk more about love. Thank you.